We are in a series uh, called Nehemiah. Oh no, I'm sorry, Nehemiah. Um, and uh, if you could go to that first slide, Mark, that'd be sweet. Just the very, very first one. I, I messed up. Yeah, not that one or that one. Yeah. Well, now you've seen my entire sermon, so there you go. Uh, it's, it's completely ruined. No, we're in a series called Nehemiah, and uh, what we're talking about is the fact that we're all building something. Uh, you know, you, you might be, uh, have a family, and you're trying to make that family as healthy as it possibly can be, and so you're, you're trying to build a family. You might be trying to build a career. And that you're, you're going to work and you're doing what you can, but your, your, your idea is to move up and to move up and to move up and you're, you're, you're building that. You might be building into some of your relationships. Maybe you're single and you're not interested in being married right now. You're interested in hanging out with your friends and getting really deep relationships uh, in your singleness. And that's great. You might be building a ministry. You know, something that's really broken your heart that you're investing in and you want to see that succeed and you want to see uh, Christ being brought into that ministry, you might be building your grades if you're going to school and you're going, you know, these classes and you're studying really hard because you know that that's important. And so, but we're all, we're all building something in our life. And the reason I know we're building something is because God has given each of us talents and time and resources. Now, in varying degrees, but we've all been given that, and he's also given us a responsibility with our life that the Bible calls stewardship. And so, uh, one of the things, one of my biggest building projects was the first house Lisa and I bought, and this is it from the backyard. Yes, it's a fleshy pink color. Duh. Um, if your house is that color, it's gorgeous, though. Uh, I could not stand it. And so we were always talking about painting it. And then, you know, we, we had just gotten out of college, so we really had no business buying a house. But we did anyway. And I didn't grow up with a father that taught me how to do projects around the house. So I learned a lot getting this house because we had no money. So I learned how to refinish hardwood floors, how to tile, how to put in electrical I, I uh, learned a lot of very expressive words um, <laughs> that, that could be used at different various times during projects. And, uh, and so I, it, it was a great experience, but it was, it was a lot of work. But when we had our kids, we had our three kids, we, the house we just felt was too small. And so we decided to put on an addition. So the way it works is that you hire an architect, and that architect sits with plans and goes over all the plans with you so that you can catch a vision for what you want to build. And I think all of us are that way in our lives, where we have a vision for what our life is supposed to look like now and in the future. And so she would do a lot of things. She'd, she'd put the thing down and she'd say, okay, here's your front door. When you walk in, that's what you're going to see. Like, do you want to see your, a wall there? Do you want to see your dining room? Do you want to see the kitchen counters? Like, what do you want to see when you walk in the house. And she got that detailed. When you come in from the garage, what, what are you going to do? You, you're gonna, you're gonna, you have shoes you're going to take off? Or you're gonna... And so she, she just worked through this whole thing. And so we were so excited to start this edition until it actually started. Um, because this was what they did in this same picture the very first day. They removed the wall of my home. Uh, they took off all that stucco. And this is what they did like within the first hour. That was the first hour. 
As a matter of fact, we had this metal awning, and I remember before we got started, I'd walk out in my patio, and I'd look up, and I'd go, okay, well, they're going to need to unbolt those bolts up there, and, and, and so they'll take that, and then they'll probably move it into the thing. And the guy walks out, he literally grabs a sledgehammer and beats the life out of my awning. Like, just, <laughs> it's gone. Like, he just starts hitting everything. They hit everything with sledgehammers. This is a picture of the side of my house. Um, that's my bathtub. <laughs> no, seriously. Just wrap, that, you're, wrap your mind around that. When I took a bath or a shower, you could just stand there if you wanted to. I would advise against it, but you could have. Like, that's, that's, my, that's my bathtub. This is my garage when they removed the roof. Um, <laughs> And so I have my tools. They're very neat and orderly, but there's no roof on my, on my garage. And so uh, it was very... And then I was in charge of the kitchen, and um, that's, this is actually an after picture, not a before picture. So uh, we, 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 I had, we had electrical cords all over the place. Everything was in huge disarray. And we were told uh, when you start an addition that, you know, be careful because you could, you could lose your marriage over the addition, and I'm like, I know, but the house is going to look awesome. So, uh, <laughs> so we decided very early on of trying to get a vision for what kind of family do we want to be during this addition when it gets real stressful. And so we decided, we got the family together, and we decided to make it an adventure, which we really did, and we look fondly back there, but we, we had our kids, they were going through all the rafters and all this kind of stuff, and at the end of the day, we finished it, and uh, right after we finished it, we sold it, and I became a pastor. So there you go. Um, so <laughs> we had it for, I don't know, a few months or something. Uh, but what we're going to be talking about is additions are great, building your career is great, but what about, what about your soul? What, what does it look like to where your heart is broken for somebody else, and you are immediately called into a ministry? What is it like when God gives you a vision for your marriage that isn't quite reality and puts this on your heart that, you know what, I'm going to make some changes? It might even be something like your finances, that God says, you know what, you're so stressed out, you're so backwards on, on all this, I have another way for you. And that you begin to step forward in faith and to make changes. We're going to be looking at the life of a man uh, Nehemiah, um, to give you some background, at about 600 B.C., um, Israel, the nation of Israel, was divided into two kingdoms. We talked a little bit about this when I talked about Elijah. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And it became two kingdoms right about after, just a little bit after Solomon, King Solomon, ruled, and, and, uh, and his son took over, and then it just, it was terrible. And that's a Hebrew word. Um, so it's, uh, and so there, there's these northern kingdoms and southern kingdoms, and they didn't like each other and all this, and they start worshiping pagan gods. And one of the things about God, as, as he's expressed in the Old Testament, is this is just one of those things that he's just not going to deal with. That he, it, it, it gets too far for him, too much for him. And he says, it's time to be disciplined. And so Judah 
got taken uh, by the Babylonians to Babylon. You can read about this uh, when you read about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were from the southern kingdom. And what Babylon did, and they were really smart about it, anytime they conquered a place, they took the best, the brightest, the most wealthy, and they took them out of their situation, and they trained them to be really good Babylonians. And that's what they did. And that's what they were doing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, about 70 years after that, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And the Persians came into Babylon and said, what are all these Jews doing here? Go home. And so there started this return from exile back into Jerusalem, back into um, uh, Ju Judah. And, and uh, it wasn't going very well. As you can imagine, um, if your family, if you got taken over, I mean, uh, one of my biggest fears is Canada. And so if Canada came down and uh, ripped us all out of our homes and carted us to Canada. After our 70 years, when we come back, there's a really good chance our neighborhoods won't look the same, our house won't look the same, and, and it's just kind of hard to restart that. I'm sorry, that made me laugh. And I, 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 you should never laugh at your own stuff. Um, and so, uh, so they, they come back, and it's, 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 it's not going well. Well, 90 years after that, Nehemiah shows up. He's in Persia, actually, in the capital city named Susa, and this is where we find him. And what we're reading in this first chapter, and what you'll be looking at in your small groups, is really Nehemiah's memoir of what happened. Now, Nehemiah changes later on as more of a historical document where it's not written in the first person. But in this beginning part, you get to see um, Nehemiah as just a man. You get to see Nehemiah almost like you could insert yourself in here. And my prayer is that by the time we get done this morning that you'll be able to see a lot of yourself in Nehemiah and a lot of Nehemiah in yourself. And so what happens is Nehemiah's sitting in Susa and some people from Jerusalem come by. And he, uh, the, one of the guys' name is uh, Hanani. And uh, Nehemiah says, is my brother. It doesn't necessarily have to be his actual flesh and blood brother. Um, it could be just a brother, like, like we would, if you're a Christian, you're talking to another Christian, you might call him brother or sister. We don't even know if Nehemiah had ever been to Jerusalem. But what we find out is that he identified with the people of Israel. That was his identity. And so here's what happens. He asks them, how's, how's Jerusalem going? They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So they give this really bleak report to Nehemiah. Now again, I don't know if Nehemiah had ever been to Jerusalem. I don't know if he was born in captivity. He might be, uh, you know, 50 or something, and, and, and he was born in Babylon. And when the Persians took over, they grabbed him and made him part of the Persian Empire. I, we, we have no idea. But what we do know is that he identified with the brokenness and the pain of what was going on. Here's what he says. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. You've probably experienced this as well. Just in the recent months and year and all the things we've seen on the news, for those of you who uh, are Latino or Latina, you 
saw the earthquakes in Mexico and your hearts went right out to those people. You thought about your family. You thought about your people. It doesn't have to be that. It could be if you're from, um, from Africa and you see something, Germany and you see something, Canada and see something, right? You, you, your heart is broken. This week, my heart was broken by the shooting in Florida. Like, truly. And, and so you have these emotions. And, you know, I, I and it, it wasn't even that I've, I knew anybody or, or anything. But I have a high schooler. And so I just kind of let my mind go through texting them. I heard there was something going on. Are you okay? Text me back. Where are you? Where are you? And just that fear and that, just the horrific nature of the event. And then I just imagine going to the school and them saying, we're sorry. He was one of the people. Like 17 babies died that day. Like, you just feel that. And then you sift through the next two weeks where every, anyway, where the humanity is taken out of it and it becomes a a political issue. And I'm all for politics, trust me. I'm not. I'm sorry. Um, And so, you know, there's a connection there even when there's not a connection there. Even though I didn't know anybody, even though I didn't didn't know anybody's name, I I just have a senior in high school. This is what Nehemiah is going through right now. He turned on CNN and his people were in distress. And so he began to weep and mourn. Now, I want to stop Nehemiah for just one second because unfortunately for many of us, this is where we stop. We feel and we weep and we mourn and that turns to anger. And the reason that turns to anger is because we're hopeless and we're helpless. And so there's no other emotion we have but to be angry, and then we turn it to blame, and it's destructive. To be stuck in, I wept and I mourned for days, is to be stuck. So what I want to share with you, just a little bit, we're going to put the Bible on pause for a second. I want to teach you something uh, that I read in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. We are turning into a church that reads out of you know, like, gets all soft or whatever, okay? So don't send me an email. Um, but, but there was one part of this book that I was reading, and it was just on one page, and it made, like, a little paragraph. And I've, like, it's changed my life. It's, it's the difference between your circle of concern and your circle of influence. Okay, so I wrote a circle of concern up here. And I, I put some stuff in there, but these are all the things, these are a lot of the things you'd be concerned about. The Advil recall, mad cow disease, immigration politics, Y2K. I'm never going to stop making fun of that. I'm just telling you right now. Okay. The scariest ones on the left, they're millennials, you know. I should have put that right under bird flu. Oh my goodness. You know, uh. All, all these different things. And they're concerned. You, I mean, you can read the news. You can, you know, you can watch CNN or Fox News or whatever. 
I got people taking pictures of it. I, I can just put, you can insert your own. You've got your own circle of concern. Y2K is mine, okay? It doesn't have to be yours. But, so that's the thing. And so we, I can read an article in any one of those things and weep and mourn for days. Well, fortunately, praise God, we have another circle. It's not our circle of concern. It's our circle of influence. It's what we can actually do do. And so the circle of influence I put in the center sometimes can be small. So I have influence over my friends, but I don't have complete influence over my friends. They can choose not to be my friend. I have influence on my marriage, but uh, it's a 50-50 thing and 50% could leave. Okay. Um, my kids, I have influence over them, but basically, I mean, sh- shocker to parents everywhere. No, you really don't. Uh, and then, um, you know, extended family and my retirement, I-, I think I do, but shocker, I really don't, right? So that's my circle of influence. And so my job, now this is where we switch back from seven habits of highly effective people to the Bible, because the Bible speaks very clearly to your circles of influence, your circle of influence, and your circle of concern. And it, looks, it looks something like this. Jesus will say, be faithful with little, and you will be responsible for much. So whatever your circle of influence is, that's where your head space needs to be. That's where your heart needs to be. That's where you need to be. Any time wasted outside that circle of influence into your circle of concern is wasted time, even though sometimes it feels good. Uh, to read an article on something you can't control. You feel informed, and that feels like you're doing something. And, and in, in some ways, you are. But the more you focus on that circle of influence, the more it grows. So if my marriage, if I'm really focused in on my marriage, and I'm really focused in on my kids and my friends and my health, now I, I, I get to start touching in on my neighbors a little bit. I get to have influence at my church. So the things that were out of, that were in my circle of concern that I couldn't uh, uh, fix, as I focus on my circle of influence, it grows. Jesus said it this way. It's a translation, but he basically told Peter, stay in your lane, Peter. And here's how he did it. Uh, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And uh, he was broken over it, and he decided to just go back to his old profession of fishing. And Jesus shows up on the beach, and he does the same thing he did when he first saw him, and he tells them to put their nets on the other side, and so they know it's Jesus. And, and so Peter comes ripping off the, off the um, boat, and Jonathan preached a sermon on this just not too long ago. It was very good. And, um, and uh, so he, he restores Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? And like, yes, I love you. And he goes through these three, from three denials to three um, affirmations of forgiveness. And then Peter says this. Uh, what, what, about, what about him? Right? Like he's pointing at John. And Jesus says, who cares? Stay in your lane. And he goes, follow me. And he starts it with, you follow me. And so Peter does. He follows Jesus, and he focuses on the 12, and he's doing his thing. And all of a sudden, Peter's circle of influence grows, and he writes uh, some books of the Bible. So as you focus on that circle of influence, now, maybe because you're in your church, and you've you're, you're, you got your kids worked out, and marriage and friends, now you're on the PTA. 
And now the things you were so worried about before, you now actually get to influence. Unfortunately, I have found for many, many Christians in the church, this is their circle of influence. They're so concerned about everything else that they miss out on what God would have them do tomorrow at work with their family, with their marriage. If you're single, with your friends, with your deep relationships, those things. We get so concerned, and those things are important, very. And so I can understand Nehemiah when he sits and he mourns for days. I get that. But I also understand that God has created us with a certain amount of time on this planet, with a certain amount of relationships, uh, Paul says it this way, and we've used this verse before, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for right beliefs. We are created in Christ Jesus to make sure we're on the right side of every issue. No. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We are his workmanship. This workmanship uh, uh, in the Greek is poema, which is where we get our name poem. We are God's poem that he's writing. Every one of us. He's given us a circle of concern and a circle of influence and says, stay in your circle of influence. Here's a, I stole this from another pastor, but I really like it. What God initiates... He orchestrates. What God births in you, he sustains. That he's able to fund it. He's able to work out all the details. But when something breaks your heart to the point of, I'm just wrecked right now. That is an opportunity to go before your Heavenly Father and say, Heavenly Father, I'm mourning. What am I supposed to be doing? And he might say, you know what? Just mourn. Just mourn. That's all you can do for right now. Just mourn. Or he might birth something in you. He might initiate something in you. And, and your first reaction, and we'll see it with Nehemiah, is going to be, well, well, no, I can't do that. I'd, I'd rather, you know, why don't you provide everything first, and then I'll move forward. That's not how God works. Once he initiates it or... Um, uh, originates it is, is what the other pastor used. I like initiate better, but that's his name. Um, well, God initiates, he orchestrates. So watch this. Remember this verse? When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and then he goes on, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I didn't just sit there in my pain, I didn't just sit there worrying, I didn't just sit there going, I was fasting and I was praying, God, what would you have me do? And here's the prayer that he prayed. I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So what he's doing is he's reminding God who God is. <laughs> hey God, remember? And the answer to that is always, yes, I do, remember. But what, what is happening and what happens to us in prayer so much is we're not twisting God's arm. 
We're not informing God of something God doesn't know. We're reaffirming what we already know as well. God, I know you're filled with loving kindness. I know you made a covenant with your people. I know you are good. And I'm coming to you in that posture. There's nothing I can do right now with this situation. So I'm coming to you. And then what he does is something so different than what I see us doing. Typically when we get something like news of a shooting or news of this or news of that, we immediately want to blame. We immediately want to talk about how the world's you know, going crazy and there's nothing we can do and all that. Watch what Nehemiah does. He says, we have sinned against you. Like, we're broken. See, what Nehemiah sees is this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not God's heart for Israel. This is not God's heart for Florida. This is not God's heart for Mexico. This is not God's heart for insert tragedy here. And sometimes the only thing we can do is just go before God and say, my God, I know you're good. I know we're in a broken world. I also know that we're, we sinned. But then he goes one step further. Because it's kind of easy to call your nation, you know, our nation has sinned, and I love our nation. I love it. I, I love it. But it's easy to go like, you know, America has sinned against God. He goes one step further. I love this. I and my father's household have sinned. There, there's a part of me, while I wasn't necessarily in that particular issue, there's a part of my brokenness that brings issues around me. And so Nehemiah goes through this process of he hears about Jerusalem. It's his people. He's broken. He knows, man, I've read the Old Testament. This was not what God had planned for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This isn't it. And he's broken. And then he says, but I know that God is good. And I know we've sinned against him. And I know I've sinned against him. And so he begins to confess this. He reminds God, again, of something that God doesn't need to be reminded of. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And then, I don't know what began to happen in Nehemiah's heart. But my hope is that the next issue that you face that wrecks you, that breaks your heart, And it might be something in a distant land and you don't know anybody involved. It might be someone in your own family. Maybe somebody who's been struggling with an issue for years and years and years. And this is just uh, one more thing that comes down the pipe. But for some of those things, they're going to turn a little bit. And that God's going to begin to flesh out your mourning and could birth something in you that calls you to action? Is it for the poor? Is it for kids? Is it for the broken? One of the things about, I was mentioning about our denomination is that our, our founder, B.T. Roberts, was looking specifically at the slave issue. And at that time in our country, uh, you know, for whatever reason, who knows, uh, 
a vast majority of us were missing that, that thing. And he just would not stand to having slavery. It went even farther. Uh, the Methodist church, we're free Methodists, the Methodist church was charging for the pews. So rich people would get to sit down and poor people got to stand in the back. And it was breaking his heart. And he was seeing in so many different ways how some people would be in the in crowd and some people would be in the out crowd. And it broke his heart. And he wrote articles. He wrote one article on slavery that essentially was what got him um, kicked out of the Methodist church. And so, but at some point it went from mourning to, you know what? We're going to start something new. We're going to start the Free Methodist Church. And in that church, you don't pay for pews. You all worship together. I mean, he would, he would, it's our saying, but he would steal it. It's better when you're here, no matter who you are, no matter what color you are, no matter what, what, how much money you make, no matter if you're male or female. You all have the same value. <laughs> We're all the same. It doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, I would have sued him if he took that. That's ours. All right. Something happens, and he says, the power of your strong hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Watch this. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, if you're reading Nehemiah for the very first time, you're a really good Jewish person, and you've read most of the Jewish books, and you go into the Jewish bookstore, and you're like, you guys got anything new? And they're like, oh, yeah, this book Nehemiah is really awesome. And you read it, you'd be like, who's this man? Like, what is he talking about? First, he's talking about, but God began to stir in Nehemiah. You're broken. And you know, he did it through prayer and fasting. You're broken over this. I get it. They're my people. Your prayer is accurate. And now I'm going to ask you to step out of your circle of concern and I'm going to grab one of those topics and I'm going to shove it into your circle of influence. Because he says this. Now I was cupbearer to the king. (laughs) Again, if you're reading Nehemiah, you go right to chapter 2. You're like, what? He was cupbearer to the king. I wonder what he's going to do. And there's a bunch of scholars that say that this was a great, this was a great place of influence. That, that you actually, oftentimes as cupbearer, you would bring the king, the king's wine. You would, you would actually became like a sommelier. You, you, you would taste it. You would see which, if it's good enough for the king. You'd make sure there was no poison in it. That would be a bummer. Um, and and, uh, and if you're the king, you're like, did you really sip out of this? Go wash it. I don't want to, you know. right? So, so, he, so there's others that say that this is a place of like submission, like you're just a servant. Here's the point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because as I've seen God work in people's lives and do extraordinary things, it never started with, and I was CEO of a company. Maybe a few times it has. And it didn't say, you know, I, it always started with just where they were at at the time. I know somebody who got diagnosed with a disease. And they did tremendous, tremendous work in the unit that they were stuck in. So their story would say, my heart just broke for those who are infirmed. 
and I had just been diagnosed. That would be their thing. You might have something where your heart is broken for, for something else, for children or something, and your thing is just like, and we just had our third child, or we just lost our third child. It doesn't matter what this says. What it says is for you, wherever you are at, financially, emotionally, whatever, God can use you to do great things after your heart has been broken. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that God has already orchestrated what he initiated in the heart of Nehemiah. And so, as Ajwa comes back up, I'm not asking you to do anything this week. I'm not asking you to start an orphanage. I'm not asking you to write your congressman. I'm not asking you to do anything. What I'm asking you to do this week, well, I guess then I am asking you to do something, is to pray. Is to be aware of your pain. When you read something, when you hear something, when you see something and it just angers you or makes you scared or whatever, you go before your Heavenly Father and you say, God, is this a call for action or is it just a call to pray to a God that I know knows this is not the way it's supposed to be? And Here's the promise I have for you. It's the promise Isaiah has. That when God speaks to you and you are given this task, he will provide. My little thing was, and we had just finished our addition. <laughs> that would have been mine. When I quit my job, sold my house, and ended up at the best church on the planet. But God, through that whole thing, we had no answers. Lots of questions. No answers. And 12 years later, this has been true for us. Just for Lisa and I. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. That has so far been our story. And I believe we're not special. I think it could be your story too. Male, female, rich, poor, red, yellow, black, and white, doesn't matter. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, there's so much to mourn in our country and around the world. So much to be frightened of. And never in history have we had access to find out about everything we could possibly be scared of. And so Lord, even more now, we need to hear from you. We need your voice. We need to know how to shut out the things that we can't change and to how to open our ears and to see the things we can to focus on really a, a circle of influence is probably not even the best word just the circle of your will what you would have for us oh lord we thank you that you're patient with us we thank you for letting you talk to us and we pray lord god in the next few weeks you would guide us into being able to be people who build what you would have us build in jesus name amen